0: Today on Against the Grain, reflections on police power and its origins, grand juries as a tool of state repression, James Baldwin and Richard Wright, and much more. I'm CS. We'll present portions of taped interviews we didn't have time to air till now, coming right up. This is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. My habit at the close of each year is to select and present excerpts of interviews I thought really stood out. This year, I realized there were many insights, many nuggets that my guests said on tape that didn't make it to broadcast because of time limitations. I usually talk with guests on tape for more than an hour and then have to edit the conversation to fit our allotted airtime so today you'll hear a number of thinkers and activists who i spoke with in 2021 saying things that haven't been aired before you'll hear ben brucato discuss the origins of policing in new york city mark neoclios call attention to the expansive nature of police power Michael Staudmeier describe how grand juries can be tools of state repression. Joseph Ramsey comment on James Baldwin's criticisms of Richard Wright, and Joseph Mosco discuss efforts to uncover state secrets. There's also Brian Palmer describing his new book about the founder of American Trotskyism, and Greg Albo reflecting on the passing of the influential left thinker Leo Panitch. We begin with Ben Brucato, who teaches sociology at Framingham State University. He joined me to discuss an article he wrote with the subtitle, The Origin of U.S. Police in Slave Patrols, which appeared in the journal Social Justice. We focused on the role anti-blackness played in the emergence of policing in the southern part of what became the U.S., but I also asked him about colonial-era policing in New York City. We didn't have time to include his answer in the program that aired on August 11th, but here is what he said, or rather what he said after further historical investigation.
1: Well, in the South, the slave patrols and the efforts by independent citizens who were mandated by the colonial governments to participate in policing uh, was focused on regulating the activities of the black population the majority of whom were enslaved, but they were certainly targeting the free Black population as well. Uh, the same thing happened in New York City uh, after England had acquired it from Amsterdam, where there was a fairly sizable slave population in the late 17th century in the first half of the 18th century it was as much as a fifth of the total population were enslaved blacks and as in the south the first move by the colonial government was to turn to the militia and to independent citizens to enforce a number of slave laws that they enacted even as early as the turn of the century, the turn of the 18th century, where they were requiring uh, slave passes to be carried. There were essentially curfew laws that required that anyone out after dark carry a lantern and, and have approval to be in public space. And this was a first move by the government to direct the militia toward regulating an internal population as part of their general mandate. And unlike in the South, the assignment of those duties to the militia and to private citizens is where things stayed for the whole of the, the 18th century. And there's a number of reasons why they did not develop a dedicated organization to fulfill this police mandate to regulate the black population. Uh, part of it is simply that the general economy and layout of the city were was very different from in the South. So it was a, a densely populated city. There was an economy that was not centered around plantation production. So the black population was far more concentrated in New York and so the the kinds of fears that they had did not require that a a, an organization kind of be circulating among very spread out areas to kind of preventatively police people instead they needed a kind of constant attention to the population within the city itself they needed a sort of vigilance on the part of the entire white community to engage in that police work and also because the labor that blacks were engaged in uh, was varied there were house servants there were mechanics there were uh, people who were working on in the docks and so on and that meant that in the normal course of their work there was a lot of circulation and communication among the black population so there was a constant fear of widespread conspiracies that they saw actualized as early as 1712 that resulted in arson and a number of deaths uh, burning of a very large area in manhattan and that left a a long-term memory among the white colonial population Uh, they they were fearing a recreation of this event and so even just a year afterward the legislature was already passing a number of slave laws to more further regulate the black population requiring the carrying of lanterns not allowing blacks to gallop on horseback and so on one thing that's really interesting about new york is that the demographics were so fundamentally different from in the south where the color line was very easy to draw between whites and blacks in the South, where in New York, there were all sorts of factions among a variety of of ethnic groups, religions, various national origins. Um, And so as a consequence of this, there was, in the first half of the 18th century, very little coherence around a white identity. And it was only in kind of momentous upheavals when that identity solidified. So, for instance, in time of the so-called Indian Wars, where these fractured religious communities came together and forged a common identity. Similarly, in these slave rebellions, we see something happen, but there was a period of decades after the 1712 rebellion when there was a diminishing coherence found in whiteness and as a consequence a lot of the colonial administrators felt that the population as a whole was not consistently and sufficiently attending to the threat of the black population. and. In 1741, when there was another large rebellion that resulted in significant damage through arson throughout the city, the legislators, other administrators, were uh, saw fault in the citizens for not being sufficiently vigilant, that they allowed this conspiracy to foment under their noses. But it goes a bit further than that even because there was, in the investigation of this arson and rebellion, it was revealed that a number of whites were involved in conspiring for this rebellion. And there was also possible involvement of a lot of free blacks who helped to forge that cross-racial allegiance. Because they were um, allegedly, uh, they were masons, black masons, who were in communication and frequent interchange with white masons, and that that bond through masonry seemed to be in this case more significant than the divide that whiteness could provide, and so we. We see that in New York, a number of reasons why whiteness was not quite so coherent and why it was not so consistently useful as a tool to mobilize the population to regulate the behavior of blacks. And so this is a reason why, one reason why, New York was not so quick to develop a dedicated organization for policing of blacks. It was just uh, not the same degree of organization around whiteness and in shoring up the color line through a sort of proactive, preventative form of policing.
0: Ben Brucato is assistant professor of sociology at Framingham State University. In his forthcoming book, Race and Police, The Origins of Our Peculiar Institutions, due out from Rutgers University Press in 2022, he argues that race and police were created in tandem when, early in the development of chattel slavery in the Anglo-American colonies, the state mandated that white citizens take action against the threat that blacks were deemed to pose to the social order. We turn now to Mark Neoclios, who teaches political economy at Brunel University, London. Mark joined me to talk about an essay he wrote about police power in the journal Social Justice. One thing he told me that we didn't have time to include in the August 23rd program has to do with the broad scope of police power as he understands it. Here's that exchange. Yeah, and you go on to argue that the police power is exerted not only through state entities, agencies, organizations, but also through non-state entities?
2: Absolutely, Um, because police forces, the police power, operates in conjunction with a whole range of organizations and industries within civil society. And from a liberal liberal perspective, these are not about uh, policing in any meaningful sense, in the liberal sense of meaningful um and so liberal ideology encourages us to not think about them as forms of policing but as soon as we operate with a broader concept of police power which 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 tries to think about how the state is administering uh, civil society we realize that they are deeply these organizations and processes are deeply connected with professional police forces so one only has to you know to give two very different examples i guess uh You know, one would be uh, how sports events are policed, to use a a kind of small p term, police, you know, which are through private security personnel, which are constantly involved with the professional police forces. Um, They manage certain social situations, which are situations that are already defined as situations of potential disorder in connection with uh, professional police forces so the security personnel that you see um, you know lining the grounds of a a football ground for example um, are not uh, defined as police officers but they're operating in a kind of policing way right in conjunction with professional police forces or to use a completely different example you know the whole insurance industry would fall apart if it wasn't for uh its relationship with uh, with police forces right so you know if you if you if your house is burgled if my house was burgled right i would phone the police but i would i wouldn't be phoning the police because i expected them to come and find the burglars because <laughs> that would be statistically very unlikely right i would phone the police because i would need a crime number in order for my insurance policy to pay out for my losses, right? So we have a, a situation in which the, the the professional police forces are simply operating as a as a kind of um, uh, an adjunct to the insurance industry, right? So the, those examples are ways in which police is kind of you know strangely integrated with all sorts of organisations and processes within civil society that we don't usually think of as you know policing. In the way that I'm trying to get us to think about,
0: Mark Neoklios is professor of the Critique of Political Economy in the Department of Social and Political Sciences at Brunel University, London. His most recent book is A Critical Theory of Police Power The Fabrication of the Social Order. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. The next set of remarks was made by Michael Stoudemire, who teaches history at Manchester University in Indiana. I spoke with him in June about an article he wrote with the title, America's Scapegoats, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S. Latina, Latino, Latinx Left 1973-83, to which appeared in Radical History Review. The article focuses on a group active in the late 1970s and early 80s that brought together Puerto Rican nationalists and Chicano and Mexicano militants in the U.S. It was called the MLN, or Movimiento de Liberación Nacional. I didn't have time to include, in the program that aired on June 29th, Michael Staudmeier's discussion of how grand juries can be and have been tools of state repression. Here is that discussion. Yeah, let's talk about grand juries because when we think of uh, when I think of state repression, I think of things like uh, police brutality, infiltration into dissident groups. Uh, you are talking about uh, like a procedural matter, a, pre- a set of procedures that had a tremendous impact on the ability of radicals and leftists to to operate, to do their thing, to uh, exercise their rights to protest. So. Uh, how did grand juries, that whole legal mechanism, work to repress uh, these movements?
3: Well, I, I should be clear that all of those other forms of state repression are certainly things that members of the MLN encountered uh, both before and after the founding of, of the MLN itself. The role of grand juries is in, in some ways uh, as you put it, it's, it's, a, it's a legal process. The creation of a grand jury is part of the legal process to determine whether or not to charge someone with a crime. Uh, this is the opportunity for, um, in this case, the, the US attorney to kind of uh, do some digging and try and find out what happened, if they believed that a crime had been committed and, and who might be responsible. Um, and one of the things that can happen at a grand jury is that you can call witnesses. Uh, Now often, in the case of these sorts of criminal investigations, the witnesses are people who might be worried that they would themselves be suspects, um, and therefore they're not necessarily friendly, they're not necessarily interested in testifying. And as a result, this goes back I believe to English common law, grand juries have the power to issue subpoenas in exchange for a form of immunity so that the people who are called to testify at the grand jury are told you will not be charged with a crime based on whatever your testimony is. And in exchange, we can force you to testify. uh, And a judge can enforce those subpoenas if people refuse to testify in spite of that form of immunity that they receive, the judge can put people in in jail. Now this is not a a criminal conviction. That is a possibility and it actually happens in the early 80s to a handful of members of the MLN. They serve several months of a prison sentence having been convicted of what's called criminal contempt of court. But usually, and what happens in 1977 after the founding of the MLN, um, is something called civil contempt. It's simply a determination by the judge that um, people who had been you know, lawfully called to testify in front of a grand jury, and had been given immunity, had refused to testify, and so we put them in prison to get them to change their minds. Um, that can last several months. Usually grand juries have a specific time limit, they have to come to an end, and when the grand jury expires, then those people have to be let out of jail. and That's what happens to, again, several of the founding members of the MLN. Uh, And that leads to a whole analysis that's promoted by the MLN and a number of other factions of the US left that says the grand jury is itself a weapon of state repression because what you're doing, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of the federal prosecutors, is you're taking these activists off the street for a period of time. You know that they are committed not to testifying, um, in part because they're worried that it will you know, negatively impact some of their comrades, maybe people in the organization who weren't called to testify, who might actually be the target of these investigations, or people who aren't in the MLN but are Puerto Rican independence activists. Again, there's an active armed struggle going on at this time with a number of people who are effectively living underground. They are the likeliest targets of these investigations. They're not being given immunity. And so if you do testify, then you could put some of your close comrades at risk. So the prosecutor understands that in advance, realizes these people aren't going to testify, well then it's win-win. If they do testify, then you can get good information out of them that can help you put these other people behind bars, and if they don't testify, then you get to put them behind bars. The the would be witnesses, and they can't be out in the streets organizing protests and rallies and demonstrations. So that's the power of the grand jury as a as a tool of state repression, and it's one of the things that the MLN really is kind of forged in the fire of this movement of grand jury resistance, uh, and. It becomes a central piece of their analysis of the state uh, and some of their ideas of fascism are really, you know, based on this direct personal experience of being put into prison without ever having been convicted of a crime, which seems in the United States like something that's not supposed to happen. And yet, through the format of the grand jury and the concept of civil contempt, it, it happens uh, fairly routinely in the 1970s, targeting especially Puerto Rican and, and Mexicano radicals.
0: Michael Staudenmeyer is assistant professor of history at Manchester University in Indiana. He's a veteran of anarchist, anti-imperialist, and anti-fascist movements. The program is Against the Grain. And we turn now to Joseph Ramsey, who teaches English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I invited Joanne to discuss an article he wrote about Richard Wright in the journal Socialism and Democracy. Joe is currently at work on a book-length study of the critical communism of Richard Wright, the left thinker and activist best known for his books Native Son and Black Boy. In the edited version of the interview that we aired on November 10th, I didn't have time to include Joe Ramsey's full response to my question about Richard Wright's internationalism, nor what Joe said about why James Baldwin was openly critical of Wright's work. Here is that portion of the interview. Uh, let's talk more about Richard Wright's internationalism. Uh, you write that his focus moved over the course of his life from communism to revolutionary internationalist humanism. Does his internationalism derive from his participation in a party and a movement that stressed anti-capitalism and therefore stressed global anti-capitalism?
4: Yeah, Wright wrote of the decolonization movements which he saw unfolding across the the world in the 1950s in Africa and Asia um, as the most important political development of the time and perhaps of his entire life. He did, you know, see in some ways, you know, the quote unquote colored races and nations of the world kind of standing up. He traveled to what was known as the Gold Coast there, what would become Ghana, and met with revolutionary leaders and toured you know, all kinds of sites across that country observing the revolutionary or the decolonization process as it was occurring. He also went to cover the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, which is understood as kind of the birthplace of the Third World Movement, right? Then thought of as a positive turn, right? A third camp, neither pro-imperialist, pro-capitalist, nor uh, simply kind of uh, in the Soviet camp, and and Wright wrote glowingly, um, if at times skeptically, of of these revolutionary uh, movements. Uh, in fact, he did not spare his criticisms, but he saw the overall kind of waking up of the colonized peoples of the earth as, as incredibly, incredibly important, and in fact, is changing history right before his eyes. Unfortunately, as he dies in 1960 at the at the young age of 52, he does not live. Uh, to witness nor to be uh, an active participant in many of the the kind of culminating moments of decolonization, as well as in the, the United States equivalent of that, right? The civil rights movement, the later phases of the civil rights movement from 1960 on. Uh, he does not live as certain other intellectuals, like such as James Baldwin, were able to kind of be an active force in that moment. But, but Wright was uh, absolutely in contact with Class conscious or you know anti-capitalist as well as anti-imperialist intellectuals in Paris, he regularly held, uh, you know, held court as some people would describe it. He was uh, he was kind of a a big figure in Paris cafes and had frequent uh, you know meetings with important black and and uh, French intellectuals, European intellectuals. Uh, many of whom were actively involved in building anti-colonial resistance. So, So Wright was very, very supportive and sympathetic of this development. At the same time, Wright was also very aware of the dangers, right? That decolonization provided, right? And, and and again, that that term comes up in a book like Black Power. He's one of the first people that I know of to publish the term Black Power in the 1950s. He writes a book by Black Power about his trip to Africa, or to, you know, to what would become Ghana or what was becoming Ghana, and he talks about you know the void that that colonization has ripped up and ripped open in in, in colonized peoples. So the same caution or a same version of the caution that he expressed in 1937 in Blueprint. For negro writing kind of emerges in a different form in his travel writing where he 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 is you know struggling with this question of how are these people who have been so beaten down by the system going to um and even if they win political independence how are they going to actually avoid a kind of falling into a neo-imperialism an economic domination by the west and how are they going to in fact kind of modernize so rapidly without doing incredible violence without some kind of new elite, even if they're a socialist-minded elite coming into power, and in fact having to kind of brutalize their own people to try to kind of leap into the 20th century, right? So he's very, very, I think, you know, anxious about the dangers that the colonial, the decolonization would lead to, but he was but he was overall supportive of it at the same time and, and was very, very public about that, though perhaps not as public as he could be on the question of Algeria As he has he depended on the French government not deporting him during that period? Uh, You know, I think one of the, uh, like many folks uh, from abroad living in France at the time, were not as open in their criticism and condemnation of the uh, French war in Algeria as perhaps they wanted to be and and ought to have been.
0: James Baldwin was one of Richard Wright's detractors. Did Baldwin not like Richard Wright because of? The perception held by many that Richard Wright was too negative in his depictions of of black culture, black nationalist consciousness, everyday black life, and I guess I'm also wondering whether you think those criticisms were justified.
4: Yeah, just uh, getting ready for this interview, I had a chance to read one a reread one of James Baldwin's uh, very influential early essays critical of Richard Wright, and that's a. An essay uh, many listeners will know called um, uh, "Everybody's Protest Novel," right? Which, you, you can tell from a title, all right, that it, yeah, it's when when somebody uh, starts out like that, they're not usually going to be praising uh, the the protest novels they pick. In, in that essay, Baldwin really discusses Harriet Beecher Stowe's nineteenth-century didactic anti or anti-slavery, if not anti-racist, classic, right, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, the book that. Abraham Lincoln would credit, quote unquote, for starting the Civil War. Um, Baldwin doesn't discuss Native Son very much, which but but he he kind of name checks Wright a couple of times and ultimately suggests Wright's protest novel. And at that point, Wright has only, had only written one, although he'd also written a collection of short stories, uh, Uncle Tom's Children, not Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, Baldwin hardly discusses Native Son at all, but he uh, it offers a very, very powerful critique of Harriet Beecher Stowe uh and of a kind of moralistic didacticism a moralistic kind of sociological novel right that the the novel as Baldwin understands it that is devoted to just basically trying to expose how bad uh, a certain kind of black oppression is And, and thus Baldwin argues paradoxically to make kind of white readers of the novel feel good, because at least they can say, I'm not like that guy, or I know things are wrong, so I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive, I'm not part of the problem, right? So Baldwin had scathing uh, critique of, of Stowe, which may be valid, I'm not an expert in, in Uncle Tom's Cabin, but but I really think that uh, you know Baldwin falsely conflates Wright's work with Stowe's, and in fact, uh, you know, you're right. Baldwin does in in a, in a couple of places uh, accuse or characterize Wright as kind of having no appreciation for black culture or or frankly for humanity. You know, it kind of accuses him almost being kind of like tone deaf to the true stirrings of the human heart. I mean, it's a pretty harsh kind of critique, and and frankly, it's a critique that echoes a number of tropes that are very common in kind of anti-communism more broadly. Uh, not not confined to Baldwin at all, but uh, Ellison will pick a lot of these themes up later in his attacks on on protest fiction, and his affirming of nuance and and irony and amb- ambiguity against you know kind of science and categorization and abstraction. But I think this is just uh, you know it's, it's a false critique. I mean I think that it's you don't need to ha- it doesn't have to be either or. You know that you can both. Capture and I think Wright at his best does uh, capture the nuanced complexity of psychological, uh, sexual, emotional um, tension in in a human subjectivity in an individual character, or in his own uh, in Wright's own memoir. In fact, Baldwin would admit in his later, his lesser known later appraisals of Wright after Black Boy comes out are actually positive, and you know are, are more positive. Um, and Baldwin's posthum or writings he produced after Wright passed away tend to be more sympathetic of Wright's later writing. So, so even Baldwin's actually, I think, you know, ultimately saw the light. But, it, but it's, it's uh, you know, Baldwin was competing for you know the spotlight. I think it, you know, I mean, he himself had been a protege of Wright, and is too, is too often and perhaps a tragedy that afflicts many writer relationships. Right? Is that sometimes there's a kind of desire to kind of quote unquote kill the father. I mean, Wright felt very betrayed by Baldwin from everything that I've read. You know, after after all, he had really tried to cultivate and support this young writer and then to have himself be, I think, so unfairly attacked really, really did sting. But, but I think, yeah, I think it's a, I wouldn't say it's a groundless critique. I mean, Baldwin, I think, is is a brilliant writer. And, and that essay in particular is, is a brilliant caution against, I think, some of what kind of abstract protest, whether it's in fiction or in life and in, in, in politics can amount to right And the way in which abstract kind of opposition to systemic oppression or something capital S, you know capital O can come at the expense of attending to like more difficult nuanced questions of what it means to be a human being. right But I think it is best right both attends to very nuanced complicated uh, very real kind of experiential dimensions of, of human existence and, and particularly among oppressed people, but not exclusively, and has a sociological, political, theoretical consciousness. Do we really need to choose between experience and theory? I mean, Wright thought we needed theory, and also we needed experience and deep listening to people around us in order to kind of put flesh on the bones of theory, in order to bring that theory to life in cultural production that could actually move people rather than just fall on deaf ears or you know just remain abstract in the air. It was a kind of abstract utopianism, um, so or, or a disconnected scientific sociological theory, but you know I don't think we should have to choose right between between theory and experience. so I think you know baldwin is, was uh, was wrong on this one, even though he wrote his essay very powerfully himself.
0: Joseph G. Ramsey is a scholar-activist based at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He hosts and co-produces the podcast Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Today we are featuring previously unaired segments of interviews taped in 2021, unaired because these portions, all of which I thought were interesting and insightful, had to be left out, reluctantly left out, of the final edited programs because of time constraints. We continue now with Brian Palmer, Emeritus Professor of History at Trent University in Ontario, Canada. He joined me in August to discuss an essay he wrote about work and capitalist temporality that appeared in Socialist Register 2021. Brian has written two books about James P. Cannon, who he calls the founder of American Trotskyism. The first, entitled James P. Cannon and the Origins of the American Revolutionary Left, 1890-1928, was published in 2007. The follow-up volume, which has just come out, has a title James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928-38. I asked Brian Palmer what his new book addresses.
5: Well, the new book on Canon really takes off where the old one left off, uh, with his expulsion from the Communist Party, uh, which he'd helped to found, and his his being driven out of that in 1928 for embracing Trotskyism. It looks at the 1930s and uh, the Trotskyist movement in America uh, and closes with the founding of the socialist workers party which was a Trotskyist party in 1938 and the establishment of trotsky's international fourth Inter- the fourth international uh later in the summer of 1938 um along the way what i think it does is that it it provides an alternative reading of the revolutionary left uh in this period to the to the focus that has been on the communist party certainly the largest party of the left Uh, in the 1930s and one that had an amazing influence in terms of the rise of the congress of industrial organization and industrial unionism uh, and a whole series of anti-racist struggles and other very important issues but with a focus on Trotskyism one uh, sees an alternative to uh, the Stalinism of these years so that for instance Cannon and his comrades had an entirely different approach to the trade union question, and were willing to build, you know, very militant uh, and very successful trade unions within the shell of the old craft unions of the American Federation of Labor, and they led one of the mass strikes of 1934, arguably the most successful and significant, the Minneapolis uh, Teamster strikes. Uh, they led three strikes of 19 19- in 1934 alone, and built a union from. That had a membership of about 150 into a union that had a membership of 7000 over the course of 8 mere months in the midst of the great depression um, you see how trotskyists tried to build alliances with other left wing groups they fused with the uh american workers party of aj musty they entered into the socialist party uh which they were later expelled from um They built uh, important bases of trade union activism among seamen on the West Coast, even made some inroads into the auto sector uh, in Toledo, Detroit, uh, and Cleveland. And, uh, of course, they championed Trotsky against Stalinist slander and calumny, the lies of the Moscow trials, for instance, by drawing in. Uh, liberal, honest liberal elements like John Dewey who chaired a commission of inquiry into the uh, allegations uh, against Trotsky which convened in Mexico uh, in uh, 1938. So uh, I think the, the value of this book aside from looking at the very complicated and uh, internal nature of the Trotskyist movement it really is a a very detailed history of the internal uh, factionalism and the internal fractiousness of the Trotskyist movement. But the other side of it is the way in which the Trotskyists intervened in events of world historic importance and uh, provided you know, an alternative to the communist international based in Moscow, both in terms of how it opposed fascism, how it uh, interacted uh, with the trade union movement and how it tried to build a broad uh, revolutionary movement um, that was not really tethered to Stalin's project, which, you know, over the course of the 1930s, really does take a lot of explaining uh, in terms of, you know, Stalinism's show trials, its repression, its violence, uh, its thuggery. I have a very detailed opening chapter in this book that should lay to rest the notion that the American Communist Party did not use violence against the Trotskyists. They used violence repeatedly, attacking forums, attacking people selling newspapers, attacking constantly someone like Cannon as he traveled the country, speaking in various labor forums and trade union halls and, and it was only through the organization of defense guards, uh, in which Cannon drew on his old sympathizers in the uh, industrial workers of the world. He'd been a wobbly in his youth. Um, really, a, a story of, of the importation of hooliganism into the into the workers' movement that had never before happened. You had never before seen violence of the kind that the Stalinists inflicted on the Trotskyists in those years from 1928 into the early to mid 1930s. So this is a different history. It recasts in some ways the history of the 1930s. There's a lot in the book on the, on the labor movement and its development. And it recasts understanding of, of for instance, how one uh, fights racism and, and how one uh, tries to develop an anti-racist consciousness in the working class. There's significant uh, addressing of that. So I, I think, really, this is an alternative history, and, uh, and in my view, a fundamentally important one.
0: That's Brian Palmer talking about his new book, James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928-38. Brian, spelled with a Y, is an historian of labor and the revolutionary left. He's an emeritus professor at Trent University in Ontario, Canada. We move next to Greg Albo, co-editor of The Socialist Register, who joined me to talk about the chapter he contributed to The Register's 2021 edition, which has the title Beyond Digital Capitalism, New Ways of Living. One thing I asked Greg about that didn't make it into the final edited program aired on November 22nd was the death of Greg's longtime colleague and collaborator Leo Panitch. Penich was a globally influential left thinker, a York University-based political scientist, and a long-time co-editor of Socialist Register, founded by Ralph Miliband and John Seville in 1964. I asked Greg about Leo's contributions to the Register and about the impact of Leo's death.
6: The death of Leo uh, last December was really sudden and shocking. Uh, he was a, a former student of, of Miliband's, and so there was a, a quite direct continuity uh, between uh, Ralph and Leo when Leo took over uh, full editing of the register after reg- uh, editing it for a decade with Ralph in the mid-1990s. You know, he was a stalwart, had edited for 35 years. Uh, many of that time period with Colin Lees, uh, Ralph before that, and then over the last decade or so, with myself especially, with also Vivek Chibber at different points in time. So, it's a, you know, it's a great loss to the Register and, you know, one of the most uh, well-known and influential, influential uh, left intellectuals around the world. You know, it was an incredible blow. Uh, and hadn't happened so suddenly last uh, uh, fall early last fall we had been having lunch together as we did and started thinking about the next volume we were producing and had kind of started mapping out the next decade of plans for the register and kind of the various politics that we were engaged in in Canada and Toronto and uh, thinking about those and it was just uh, shocking how quickly he ended up in the hospital uh, with uh, getting treated for a particular type of cancer, and then picking up COVID in the in the hospital and just dying so suddenly. You know, he was as lively as usual all the way through the through most of the summer. And uh, at our last uh, meeting, was you know, typically a full of argument, full of life, and full of uh, projects to uh, continue the anti-capitalist project. My own personal relationship with Leo is partly, uh, he's uh, older than I. Um, We both come from Winnipeg, different uh, working class backgrounds, but from working out of working class Winnipeg. Coming to the university, we shared some of the same professors. Me uh, 10 or 15 years later after Leo, had known many of the same network uh, before meeting each other, had been involved in many of the similar kinds of struggles that had been forming across Canada in and around union struggles or, in those days, the Fight the cruise missile testing in Canada, in the peace movement and so on. And then I briefly studied with him for a while and then um, we became colleagues at York uh, and worked, worked and collaborated uh, for many years. We ended up actually doing, I think, some uh, uh, 20 book projects together. One or two of those I was a research assistant uh, or had helped organize seminars and about 17 or 18 of those are Books that we edited together they wrote or co-edited together so it's a long time of collaboration you know you kind of m- miss that kind of collaboration every day it's partly there's a gap every day uh, you know between him and uh, Sam Gindin uh, and myself and uh, odd person here and there you know we were almost kind of continually emailing and debating this and that thing about going on in the world or Canadian politics American politics constantly so there's a kind of daily uh, gap uh, in losing a kind of a teacher, a comrade, a collaborator, you know, a daily correspondent like that. It's a huge hole in um, my personal life, but also, I think, uh, for a lot of us in Toronto and Canada. And then, I, you know, his connections with the, uh, with the left in Britain, the U.S., Greece, Brazil in particular, I mean, a, a large gap for a lot of people in the world.
0: Greg Albo talking about the late Leo Panitch. Greg teaches political economy in the Department of Politics at York University, and is co-editor of the Socialist Register. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. We have time for one more set of remarks. This one provided by Joseph Mosko. Joe is professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. Here's a previously unaired clip about efforts to force the government to release information. I want to ask you about what Jody Dean has written. Um, She has written about a lot of things, but one focus of her attention has been people's obsession with uncovering state secrets, right? You have all this information produced by the government and so much of it now is classified or SBU, in the SBU category. So people want access to that information and it becomes kind of, for some people, a, um, an extended quest to get the government to reveal information about um, certain events and certain people what does she argue about uh, the consequences that that obsession has on efforts to achieve social change in the U.S.?
7: Oh, yes. Jody Dean makes a really substantial uh, kind of contribution both to social theory and kind of our, our, our democratic conundrum right now by noticing that In many cases, the way a political debate gets framed is we have to get the documents to understand what happened. And so the political frame becomes like how do citizens mobilize, how do activist groups mobilize, NGOs to get information out of the federal government so that then you can have the debate about what a good a good policy is, and she says this has a couple of of different effects. And I think uh, it's it's really an important argument, and it's well worth everybody thinking about how how it affects their their own notion of what political potentials are in any given historical moment. The first is she says that you spend all your time mobilizing to get access to documents, without asking what do you already know about the historical reality of your moment? And what do you already feel committed to in terms of a change in political reality? And so in her uh, in her larger argument, she uses the example from the early 2000s in which Dick Cheney as vice president was holding a set of meetings with the executives of big oil companies. And this was in 2002. It's right before the invasion of Iraq. And there's a lot of Uh, concern in the public sphere that the kind of war on terror frame is being harnessed now to a concern about oil and that the invasion of Iraq is being orchestrated around counterterror and WMD concerns when it is actually more profoundly about control of oil reserves. And there was a big public Uh, kind of concern about the fact that the vice president was meeting with oil executives in private and not meeting with any anti-war groups or uh, uh, folks that had interests in alternative energy and so on. And that the the battle was uh, then staged over getting the records of who was in that meeting with uh, the vice president. And what Dean says is that you know, you could spend a couple years or a 10 years, maybe, trying to get the official log of who was in that meeting, or you could act on what you already know if you're asking the question, which is that there's a relationship between big oil and the White House, and this is involved in a geopolitical uh, campaign that includes war as one of its domains, and to mobilize directly on that without needing to have it documented in some official record. So she uses that example and uh, in a a larger argument works through a lot of social theory to talk uh, about how secrecy has become a kind of fetish and a kind of surrogate for direct democratic engagement on issues of collective concern, that people bypass the direct action kind of alternative of a democratic uh, public sphere in favor of uh, you know trying to get access to some kind of official documentation and she goes a little bit further and this informed the concept of the secrecy threat matrix that i developed as well in talking about how it kind of creates an alibi Whereas many people could say, you know, if only we had access to the official record, then we could have a democratic society of the kind that we believe should exist and want to exist, but until we have full access to the records, uh, you know, our hands are kind of tied. And she suggests that that's this kind of self-imposed limitation. And uh, I would add that I think it's also a particular feature of a national security state, which is a very peculiar kind of democratic uh, experiment.
0: Joseph Mosko's books include The Theater of Operations, The Nuclear Borderlands, and The Future of Fallout and other episodes in radioactive worldmaking. And that wraps up this collection of insights delivered by scholars and activists who I was fortunate to talk with in 2021. You'll find links to each program-length interview at againstthegrain.org. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio resources and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.